Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Deadhead Cannabis Show. I'm Larry Mishkin of Mishkin Law in Chicago, joined again by my co-host, uh, Rob Hunt of Lene Holdings in San Diego. Uh, I've made it back to the show, Rob, after surviving the heat and uh, and uh, uh, inclement weather, if you will, of uh, the Grand Canyon in Arizona, um, but it was great. I'm glad to be back, and uh, nothing like uh, rolling your way back home. So, Dan, if you could just go right off and kick us off with the uh, first song, we'll start talking about it after we listen to it. Nothing like rolling it back home with Franklin's Tower, huh? How are you, Rob? I'm great, man. Welcome back to uh, to out of the desert. Happy you made it home, and uh, it sounded like a really fun trip. So I'd love to hear about love to hear a bit, a bit more about it another time. But I also love the fact that you decided to stick with the June 1980 theme and kind of pick up from where we left off last week. You know, going from June 12th, 1980, right into uh, June 20th, 1980, from West High School Auditorium. Uh, in Anchorage, Alaska. Now, I'll repeat that again. West High School Auditorium. I, I, look, I got to tell you, I, I love the show that you guys did last week. The only bummer about being on vacation was that I couldn't talk about it. I remember reading about that way, way back in, when the, the Book of the Deadheads first came out, a soft cover book that came out like back in, God, 1983 or 84. It was all a bunch of pictures and quotes, and they had little snippets in there. And one of the snippets was this whole thing uh, you know, of Bill Walton telling the story about how they were uh, playing in uh, in Oregon and just as the uh, the mountain exploded and they were playing fire on the mountain and uh, in Mount St. Helen. And at the time I read it, I was like, how could that possibly be? But you see enough stories about it. And, you know, when you've been to the Grateful Dead and all of a sudden the full moon comes out after a pouring rain, just as Larry, Jerry hits the last lick of a tune, uh, you begin to understand and appreciate that you know, there's there's a deeper power at work here, um, and and hats off to you guys for exploring that show. But I love the idea, like you say. They said we're going to go to Alaska for the one and only time in their career, and they're going to play in a high school, a high school gymnasium. It makes me think of my high school gymnasium, you know, and like the the prom bands that would play there. You know, the local guys who would all come together and have a little prom band, or like the band we talked to who played at the bar mitzvah that uh, the Grateful Dead showed up at, but. No, here's a high school gym, and you got the the Grateful, the 1980 Grateful Dead, and they're rocking it out. That had to be amazing. Yeah, it's really funny. I went to college with a handful of kids from Anchorage and a handful that went to West High School, and you know, it was like one of my first questions, like, guys, like, you know, do you know who's at that, you know, Grateful Dead show? And you know, all of them were too young, obviously. Everyone, everyone I knew would have been in 1980 would have been eight or nine years old. 
So none of them went, but uh, but it was really funny because there's, you know, believe it or not, for what we consider to be a big city, Anchorage really only has like three real high schools, got East, West, and Diamond. And uh, so, you know, of all the kids I knew, like some were at East, some were at West, and some were at Diamond. But the most most of the ones I knew were, were at West, and they're all very aware of the show. And it was like sort of still legend to them that the Grateful Dead played their high school gym. That just seems amazing. I couldn't believe it when I found out that the Grateful Dead played at Merrimack Community College in St. Louis back in the early 1970s, which is just a few minutes from my house. And, you know, the last place in the world you'd expect a band like the Grateful Dead to show up. But uh, but, but that's in the 70s, right? I mean, this is this is 15 years into their career where a few weeks earlier they were playing their, their 15th anniversary shows at Folsom Field, which is, you know, that's the football stadium for the University of Colorado Boulder. And, a couple you know, days earlier, they were playing in Portland at you know, a venue that holds fifteen or 20,000 people. To all of a sudden go into a place where that room couldn't have held more than like 1,200 or 1,500 people. You know, that's, that's a, like, I can't think of another place the Grateful Dead played that was that small that late in their career. One place that I never went to but was always legendary was the hall that they played in at the University of Vermont. And I always remember hearing about that being a pretty small Patrick Jim. Yeah, I remember hearing about that being a, a really relatively small venue, but probably not that small. Not that small. I've actually been to a bunch of shows at Patrick Jim, you know, having gone to UVM. Uh, and uh, it probably held 3,500. You know, it was small, but definitely a much bigger crowd than a, than a high school gymnasium. Right. And I was excited in 85 or 86 when I thought I was going to see the dead play at the Fox Theater in St. Louis. And that probably holds four or 5,000 people. Um, but, you know, I think it just goes to speak to the idea of they can come in and they can fill up a huge auditorium. No problem. We've all seen them do it anyway. You know, Soldier Field, the biggest places in the world. And yet I think that at heart, they're a small venue band, right? When they're in a small venue, it, they that was the beauty of the, the, the Capitol Theater in, in uh, Port Chester, right? It's, it's a tiny little speck of a place and the stage is barely big enough to accommodate them. And, you know, they just come in and they fill the whole thing up and. I love that, you know, I just, just love it. And the idea that you're right, as late as 1980, you could stroll into a high school gymnasium, you know, kind of makes me wonder that they had to have uh, auditoriums in the, in the Anchorage area. Did they just not think that they could draw enough or were they purposefully trying to play small? Yeah, it's a great question. I I think it's probably the former. I just don't think that they, um, that they had enough of a fan base up there and, you know, Anchorage isn't a huge town. So to fill a room of, you know, four or 5,000 people, I think we relatively, relatively difficult for those guys even at the sort of peak of their, uh, of their fame. But, you know, yeah, I think that in 1980, like that was also, they were playing a lot of small rooms. They were doing Radio City. They were doing the Warfield. They were doing a bunch of, uh, of other spots where they were sort of switching on and off of the acoustic sets and the electric sets uh, right in that era as well. No, all very true. And um, I myself have never been up to Alaska. I hope to get there one day. Uh, my Hoban colleague, Janet Weltson, who I give a quick shout out to, lives up there. We hear beautiful things about it. And uh, maybe one of these days, um, I'll, I'll be lucky enough to make it up there. But look, you know, no matter how you slice it, you know, uh, a Franklin's is always going to be a great thing, right? And this is just more of a uh, uh, a throwback, you know, to the good old days when you'd get a direct, a Jack Straw Franklin's or a half step Franklin's or something like that. Uh, you know, and I guess the downside of that is they weren't doing the help uh, slip portion for a while, but I always liked Franklin's. It can stand on its own anywhere in the set. Yeah, for sure. And the other thing that I think it's worth pointing out is the date that they played it up there, uh, which, you know, coincides with the summer solstice, which means you walk out of an indoor show into the bright sunshine at 11 o'clock at night. Which is going to be a pretty surreal experience of saying, "Okay, let's see," you know, which is why the the Talkeetna Bluegrass Festival that happens in um, in uh, Alaska every summer, which always happens around the solstice, 
if everyone knows it's ever gone up there, they say one of the best things about it is that, you know, the sun never goes down during the festival, be, you know, 11, 12 o'clock at night and people are still going strong. So it just feels like midday. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, every year they always have the art, the, uh, what is it? You know, the midnight baseball game without lights up in Alaska, you know, at, at that moment. And sure. Look, that's, you know, I, I remember once when the, uh, God years ago, 80, 889 probably uh the dead did a summer solstice show and they it was like one of the first times they simulcasted on you know pay-per-view and it was it was the summer solstice show and my buddy and i were so excited oh my god we're, we can't be there we're going to get to see it on pay-per-view and how amazing it's going to be and then we missed the first 20 minutes of the show because as it always happens with pay-per-view you know it wasn't coming in and then once we finally got it in it, it you very quickly understand the difference between being at a Grateful Dead show live and watching a Grateful Dead show live on TV in your own living room. And, you know, I get that during the pandemic, we all didn't have too much of a choice and you kind of have to do what you have to do. But it was, we both kind of looking at each other like, well, this is okay, but, you know, we're sitting in your parents' house, you know, and the, there's only so much you can do while you're watching a show like that. But uh, it was definitely a summer solstice event and, and God love them. You know, they, they tie into all that kind of stuff. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, the, the simulcast or, you know, uh, couch tour, whatever you want to call it these days, has certainly gotten a lot better. And I think if you have enough people over to your place and you've got a good enough stereo system and, you know, the, the drinks are easier to get, the, uh, the the space to dance is usually a little bit better. So I don't know, as I get older, I appreciate couch tour all around. You know, the, the, it's a better venue sometimes when you're at your house. Uh, you know, if you've got 20 or 30 people, if it's just you and a buddy hanging out in the basement, yeah, probably not as fun. But if you've actually got a pretty nice house where you've got the whole place like, dialed in with Sonos speakers throughout the entire house. Uh, you can actually help a lot of fun these days with Couch Tour. Okay, when are you inviting us over for one of those, Rob? Sounds like you got it all set up. I, I have it pretty well dialed. I'm not going to lie. It's, uh, you know, uh-huh. I'll, I'll tell you this. Now that ReListen is on Sonos, and I can like plug in like almost any show from any band on the ReListen and pump it through Sonos, Like when my wife and kids are out of the house, there's definitely times where my whole house like you know starts rocking like a venue, which is, uh, which is pretty fun. Well, you know, look, it, a lot of it's just... Um, you know, trying to keep up with the technology or, you know, the more simplistic things, uh, you know, live vinyl. In fact, my wife's cousin is coming by tonight with her husband, Bill, from uh, Coronado Island in San Diego. You know, this guy, is, I may have talked about him before, has like 14,000 albums. All he does is listen to vinyl. It's a few CDs, but he's a vinyl guy. He has a really nice turntable and a receiver, and he just sits and listens to vinyl all day. And you know what? His vinyl is so damn good. I think I could probably do that, too if I had taken the time to put together the kind of collection he has, but look, this is uh, it's a modern day and age. And, you know, to be able to relive uh, June 20th, uh, 1980 with friends and be talking about it is I think pretty darn good overall. So, uh, you know, it's an exciting show. We're going to hear more about it as we go along. Uh, we have lots of good news stories uh, to talk about. And, uh, you know, I, I guess Robert, you know, without sounding too cheesy, right. We can go right back to that song and pluck one of their lines out of it as we go straight to our first news story of the day. Cause they talk about, if you get confused, just listen to the music play. And I'd like to say that's exactly why I picked that, uh, that particular part to listen to, but I, I really picked it because I love the way Jerry takes off because that's the one verse where they don't sing the roll away and he just takes it and, and runs with it. But, uh, yeah, you know, if we're going to, uh, you know, just get confused and listen to the music play, then that ought to be the theme song for the FDA, right? Because here we are again with these guys who just don't get it. And it, it becomes a question of, do they really not get it? In which case, why the hell are they working for the FDA? Or do they choose not to get it because they just don't like the cannabis industry? And as we all know, right after uh, the 2018 Farm Bill was signed, making hemp 
and it's all of its constituent cannabinoids legal, the FDA came running right out and said, oh, well, we've got uh, regulatory jurisdiction over this now. We've never tested. We've never approved. And sorry, we can't give this our stamp of approval and we can't do it. And as a result, hemp sales are, 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 are prejudiced all around the country because most communities misinterpret that either as a signal that it's still illegal or that it's not safe. And of course, the FDA is not saying it's not safe. The FDA is just simply saying, um, we haven't gone through our normal testing yet, right? It's like we talk about as if they woke up one morning and this substance was sitting on their kitchen table and nobody had ever seen it before. So it's frustrating and we go into these hearings and the, uh, you know, the idea is, okay, the FDA is going to take another look at CBD. Can we get them to change on this? And even before it goes in, the articles were already coming out that the insiders are saying, no, nothing's going to change. Um, you know, they're going to take another look at it, but they need to test it and they need to make sure it's safe. And so, sorry, but don't expect, don't expect there to be any big changes on this. And to me, that it, it, we, we get to the point where it's willful and, and, and the government is saying, for whatever reason, we don't, we don't care that, that of all people, we don't care that President Trump signed the 2018 Farm Bill. We're going to still continue to make this as difficult for you as we can. Well, it's not just the, um, it's not just the FDA. I mean, if you look at the, uh, the ruling that just came out, there's two rulings that were released earlier this week by the, um, by the D.C. Uh, Court of Appeals. And, and those essentially dismissed one suit for, uh, for lack of standing and dismissed the other suit for uh, lack of subject matter jurisdiction. Which again, now we're getting some heady, like you know, legal topics here. But you know, the gist of it, the takeaway, uh, and this is re- the relation to um, to hot hemp oil for work in progress, hot hemp oil. And you know, to your point of, do they just not get it, or are they willfully just ignoring it? Uh, they came back and said, okay, well, you know, the interim final rule that the DEA put out in 2018, soon after the the passage, excuse me, in 2020, it was in August 2020, uh, essentially. Um, went against what the farm bill said and several people filed suit against it, including your buddy, Bob Hoban, who I, I think was a, a part of that suit. And, you know, uh, Sean Hauser from the Sente Cedarburg and Rod Kite from Kentucky, a handful of attorneys challenged it. And ultimately what they were saying is like, Hey, we're, we're not challenging the, uh, the IFR on its face, but we're challenging the interpretation of it, that they don't have the ability to, to even opine on this because it's no longer in their jurisdiction. Well, the, the circuit court came back uh, where they filed it and said, we disagree with you. And then they appealed to the appeals court in DC and the DC appeals court came back and said, well, technically you shouldn't have filed it to the, uh, the circuit court. You should have filed it directly to us because anytime you're challenging a final rule that goes directly to us, it skips over the circuit court. And, and the petitioners came back and said, well, wait a second, we're not challenging the, the validity of, of the rule. We're, we're, we're challenging the validity of, of their ability to, to opine on it. So we're seeking declaratory relief or injunctive relief um, rather than, you know, having you guys, uh, you know, you're missing what it is that we're asking for, essentially. So now, very likely, they're going to have to refile. They're going to have to refile now directly to the um, to the appeals court. And in the process, you know, they're going to have to try to educate these guys again. And if you read, you know, some of the, uh, the, the words that were in between what the ruling was and how they were thinking about it, it made you realize that these jurors have no freaking idea what it is they're talking about because it's just too complicated an issue of going from being separated out of the Controlled Substances Act completely to then trying to like pick it back up and reinsert it into the Substances Act and giving deference to the DEA when the DEA has no control over this issue at all once it's been determined to come from hemp in the first place. So, it, and I'm probably confusing our audience at this point too, but you know, I've written an article about this that's on my LinkedIn profile, so check it out. It's called The DEA is Wrong. Um, and, and quite honestly, I think that all the attorneys I just you know uh, mentioned would agree with my interpretation. And I think that the, uh, the language that, the, that Congress put forward was clear and unambiguous 
unambiguous, which means that you have to look to the plain meaning of, of the language in the bill. You, you, can't, you can't try to determine what congressional intent was if Congress has actually written down what their intent is. So it, it, if you get confused, listen to the music play. Amen, brother. He, you know, and you did explain it very well, you know, and and look, we're going to keep our fingers crossed. You know, here, Here's what my concern is, though, Robin. I know I've talked about this before, but when I see this and, and, and the I was talking to a client this morning, the client wants to go to one of the North Shore communities uh, in Chicago here, one of the North, North Shore suburbs. They have a monthly farmer's market and he wants to he's a, a hemp a products manufacturer, CBD products manufacturer. And he wants to get a booth and sit there and be able to display his product, right? They're all perfectly legal. And the town that we're talking about, and I don't have to name it, but the town that we're talking about already has brick and mortar CBD stores in the town. So on, on all overall, they don't have a problem. They've rejected his application to be in the farmer's market. After looking at this and determining that the FDA has still not given its approval for CBD and given the fact that this is supposed to be a family event and these are special permits and blah, 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 um, you know, uh, we're not going to do it. Sorry, you, you, no permit. You don't get to display your goods here or anything at all like that. There, you know, these are people running scared because they they misinterpret what the FDA or the DEA is saying, and they take it and they apply it in a way that it was never meant to be applied. And and you're, what you just said a second ago is exactly right. The minute that we determine that the substance that we're dealing with is hemp, right? Cannabis with a THC of 0.3% or less by dry volume weight, the federal government, certainly the DEA has zero involvement in it. And while one, I suppose, could argue that the FDA has regulatory authority over it, they got to pull their heads out of their ass, quite frankly, and, and stop pretending like we've never seen this before. And go look at Raphael Mishulam's research or the research in Europe or the research anywhere else in the world that exists out there or the fact that it's been around for 10 plus years on a wide scale basis. I've never heard of anybody dropping dead from it. I'll tell you, you know who did get it? Scott Gottlieb got it. Because when, when the farm bill was passed, Scott Gottlieb went in front of Congress and said, you buffoons, you don't know what you just did. You just legalized all cannabinoids in any in any amounts, all cannabinoids, as long as they're derived from something that's designated as hemp. So as soon as it gets the hemp designation, it is removed from the Controlled Substances Act. It is no longer part of the CSA. And once that happens, then everything that follows, derivatives, salts, isomers, everything else that follows is technically legal. Now, Congress might not have realized you could extract it and, and get to a point where you could take fields and fields of hemp and, and actually extract kilogram quantities of, of THC isolate. But you know what? That's the reality. You can. So if they want to amend it, amend it. Change the language. But the language that they wrote in the Farm Bill and, and, and the language they asked for to be in the Controlled Substances Act, which removes hemp completely away from the CSA, it's out of the definition of marijuana. Gone. Removed. It is a separate definition. Okay. Maybe they made a mistake. Maybe maybe, maybe if they realized, they, they wouldn't have done it. But, but I'll use a really good analogy here, which is that when Section 280 of the tax code was passed, it was passed because there was there was a window there that was allowing for you know drug dealers to take their ill-gotten gains and pass them through legal entities. And the tax court sided with these guys, and they said, hey, Congress, there's a loophole here. You have to close it. You've got to fix this. You know, if you don't like what's happening, we have to side with the uh, with these guys that are putting through all these expenses in the tax code. And so Congress went back and amended it. And that was what Section 280 of the tax code is, and that's what's still hurting every cannabis business today. Well, this is a very similar situation. Congress has passed a law. It's created this loophole. The loophole allows for people to uh, to you know 
make D8 and D9 and everything else, anything else that comes out of hemp, uh, as well as every other trace cannabinoid, psychoactive or psychotropic or not, and allows them to, uh, to, to put it out in the marketplace, which now we know there's protection from that, you know, the Ninth Circuit, and whether or not that's binding, you know, nationwide, but the Ninth Circuit has opined on this several weeks ago to say you can actually um, get trademark protection on, on uh, D8 coming out of hemp. But again, if that wasn't what Congress was thinking, tough shit. Go back and amend the law. It's your law to amend. Think about this for a minute. If, if you really drill down to what you're saying, and, and I absolutely agree with you, what we really have here is a Congress that was trying to make a law for something it knew nothing about. And why did it know nothing about it? Because up to that point in time- Because they didn't ask us. <laughs> well, not even that. Under Schedule 1, they couldn't even study it. Right, right, right. right. In the law, we're not allowed to study this. So, But now we're going to pass laws even though we know nothing about it because we're not allowed to study it. But you'd think they would have at least had the foresight to say, let's get a couple technical people in here that truly understand the cannabis plant and let them say to us, what are we missing here? And you know, if, I, if I'd sat with Congress, I would have been like, oh, you guys, you're, you're kind of missing the point that you can still extract all this cannabis. And there's no point in time in the extraction process where you're not going to pop hot above 0.03% THC. Now you could have a rule that says there's an interim period that you've got between you know a CPG branded product, a consumer packaged goods product, and the time you you start off with the uh, the biomass material where you know it's going to get hot. But you've got to have a chain of custody sort of you know gated around that, and we can you know solve for this. But if you don't even know that that exists, if you don't even know that that that's a potential. All these buffoons are thinking about, and I, I mean that collectively to all the Congress people and their staffs who aren't thinking about this properly. The only thing they were thinking about is, well, can you smoke enough hemp to get high? And if the answer to that was no, then they thought they were protected. They never once considered extraction or distillation. Exactly, and, and again, and you're right. Not only you know did the law not permit them to study, uh, but they were too cocky to reach out to people in the industry. We had the same problem here in Illinois when they passed the. Adult Use Act, and we all looked at it and said, "This is crazy. This is never going to work. You, you have an unworkable social equity program in here. This is going to explode in everybody's face right away." Uh, you know, and by the way, the Constitution requires you guys to have rulemaking among the agencies. No, no, no. We don't have time for that. We don't want to delay. This is too important of a project. The, the, the money is going to help the state. We need to get that out there. Okay, how did that work out? Well, here we are, folks. Two years, two months later. They are now telling us that the licenses are finally going to get issued over a sporadic period in July, and then eventually they're going to start to be able to do – we're so far down the road, they've lost so much time because they refuse to let the people who know something about the industry be, get directly involved and help them make workable rules and regulations. So. Yes, it is. It's just we all are confused. And thank God the Grateful Dead is there to play music for us because otherwise we'd really go crazy. Yeah, no doubt. So what about some other news? What's happening these days? I know you found some stuff about what's going on in New Mexico right now. You want to share a little bit of that? Yeah. Um, New Mexico is a pretty interesting situation because down there, what what has happened is a group has sued to force the state's medical insurers to cover the cost of medical cannabis for state residents. And it's it, it's really a fascinating argument because it, to some degree, it goes almost to what we're talking about right now, except now, of course, we, we really are talking about uh, marijuana at this point, uh, right? But the argument is, if this is something that somebody is using for their own healthful benefit, why shouldn't it be subject to insurance coverage? Which of course is a very obvious and very good question. Um, you know, and I'm sure there's a very, you know, a long and dirty and convoluted story of, uh, you know, 
insurers who probably don't want to touch it with a 10 foot pole. Um, and you know, a, a lack of understanding on the part of your, uh, underwriters, right? How do you, how do you, how do what, what kind of a risk are we really talking about here? So, you know, maybe there's some understanding as to what they're doing, but overall, I think it's going to be very fascinating to watch and see because, you know, it, it, it's putting the state in its place, right? We, we, we've all talked about medical cannabis being the wink, wink int for adult use cannabis, but at least on paper, if a state is going to vote and say, we recognize the medical benefits of this product and that it can provide medical benefits to our citizens, why shouldn't that be covered by insurance? Just like anything else that can help a patient. Um, we'll see. No, it absolutely should. And it's about time that people start challenging these things. You know, again, I hate to say it because I'm not a huge fan of litigation in general. You know, I don't think any attorney is. I think most attorneys will will tell people to uh, to avoid litigation at all costs. And ultimately, it's usually a lot of money without a, a great result. But in certain times or certain cases, I think it's absolutely necessary and uh, to, to push legislation and progress forward with cannabis. I think oftentimes it requires, you know, people thinking of novel approaches and then forcing people to uh, to, to go after whoever's holding the, uh, the industry back and hold them to account. And I think this might be a great case where, where you know, they're seeking a, a way to solve an issue that won't be solved on its own. Look, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, and this is a great time to roll into uh, uh, another song from our show. And, and uh, you know, just to carry on this theme, you know, the, one of the songs that we're about to, to uh, highlight here in, in a, uh, a, a crossover um, is going to be uh, Let It Grow, right? And, and the, the whole theme of that is the, the guy saying, listen to the thunder shouting, I am, I am, I am. And isn't that what's happening here, right? All these people are re- reaching up finally to the insurers and saying, you know, enough of this. We, we need to be covered. We have medical conditions. You're letting us use this. It, you can't have it both ways. So at any rate, that's our preaching. Dan, play us some music, would you? <laughs> Apologies, we didn't really have a, a, a very uh, good, solid part of the "Let It Grow," but my thinking here is, I love the transition from "Let It Grow" into Althea. In the middle of the set, they still have "Lost Sailor" and "Deal" to go before this set is over. Um, you know, and, and I was always raised with "Let It Grow" being the set closer, and you know, to get a, a "Let It Grow," then to go into Althea, um, and then to still get a "Lost Sailor" deal is not a bad day at the office. Much agreed. And uh, it's weird to hear Let It Grow. I mean, Let It Grow always kind of fades out with the, the breakdown right at the end before they end the song. So it's sort of a, a gentle fade instead of an abrupt, you know, set closing ending uh, the, the way you know some others are. But uh, but to have it, you know, 
not really do that and, and segue really, really cleanly into Althea. It's such a pretty transition. And, and what I'll say is the, uh, the electric piano that Brent is playing, um, it comes through pretty clearly there and it did in the Franklins as well. I mean, it was really, really fun electric piano rather than like the organ sound that we're used to thinking about. With Brent. I agree. And yeah, and he, he could slide over and do that, but yeah, this, you know, it, it, this is, you know, part of the thing about 1980, you know, 1980 was, uh, I don't want to say still fun because it was always fun, but there was still, you know, just a little bit more of this mystery as to where songs would necessarily wind up in the set. And by 83 or 84, I think they were really, you know, kind of really starting to get much more set in their ways as to where songs were going to be. And it was just so rare, uh, you know, to hear something like Let It Grow wind up so early in the first set. Um, instead of just, you know, being thrown in at the end uh, to close it out. So good times in 1980. Great night to be in the gymnasium for sure. It's a lot of good fun. I think also a little bit of what we got going on, Rob, and boy, I mean, the good news is, is that we've got uh, cannabis news from everywhere in the country. The bad news is not really bad news, but the frustrating news is that the states don't always play ball with our programs and, and with our uh, industry. Some do, some don't, some pretend like they are. You know, and I, I start off by looking at what's going on in Nebraska, where a group that's trying to get a medical marijuana ba- uh, referendum on the ballot has won an initial court battle. Uh, and interestingly enough, the the court battle was around how they would gather the 87,000 signatures that they need to have by July 7th in order to get this on the fall ballot. And apparently there is a, um, a, a statute in, in Nebraska that says that you have to have uh, signatures from at least 5% of the registered voters in 38 of the 93 counties in Nebraska. But as you can imagine, it being Nebraska, Almost all of the counties are rural with not a whole lot of people in them. And some of them who live there are very set in their ways and are not necessarily likely to support this type of a proposition. So it, in effect, was a, was keeping this, uh, this, this proposal off of the ballot. And at least right now, they've gotten a, uh, a court to make a ruling, a U.S. district judge, no, no less, who stepped in and who has temporarily enjoined that requirement and is saying that if they get the 87,000 signatures, even if they all come from just one or two counties, that that'll be fine. And certainly, you know, if you're thinking about uh, Lincoln and um, Omaha, Omaha, uh, you know, between those two towns, you ought to be able to get your 87,000 signatures. So, you know, this is a federal court judge. Think about it. You know, of all people stepping in, you know, trying to get this thing going so that, um, you know, Nebraska can participate, too. Yeah, I mean, I look at it with you know, a fair amount of crass cynicism on this one. And that's that, you know, if Nebraska were to pass it, then where are they going to get all their revenue from picking off cars going back to Colorado? You know, it's one of the, the greatest sources of revenue for a long time were civil asset forfeitures going across I-80. So, uh, you know, I'm wondering whether or not they're getting a lot of opposition going, well, wait a second, this, we got a good thing going. We've got legalized theft that we've had for, you know, how many years? You and I both know they're going to have their business and they're going to keep doing that anyway, because they're going to say if it's coming over from Colorado, it's illegal. It doesn't matter if we have it in our state or not. Well, I, I think it... I th- you're absolutely right, but I think the necessity for bringing it across the line is a, is a lot less. Now, I don't think very much of Colorado's weed was flowing in to stay in Nebraska. I think it was going through Nebraska. Exactly. And, and, and as I said, it's kind of, you know, the old black goes south and white comes north. It was, you know, green goes east and, or, you know, green goes east and different green comes west, you know, which is uh, weed, weed east and money left uh, west. But yeah, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I think, uh, I think this is one to watch. And paraphrasing our, our next song clip, 
you know, the, I heard your plea in the courthouse. The witness box began to rock and rise. And 49 sister states had Nebraska in their eyes. They sure do, because this is going to be huge. If, you know, they get something like this, other states will, will be diving into it right away. Dan, can you cue that one up for us? classic 1980 transition right a, a standard set opener a good alabama getaway uh and the greatest story ever told i could listen to that all day you know it's about as power packed one two punches you're going to come as a show opener this is an alabama greatest super fun and at, at the time i think both those songs I mean, alabama i think was was relatively new that was a, a go to heaven track right so I, I think they probably only released it i've got to check my notes but uh, i think they only released it probably in the last year before that show yeah, no, I, I think that's correct. And, you know, of course, Greatest Story has been around forever, or, you know, at least since the early 1970s. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, it, one of the things I love about that song is it's, it's it, as far as the Grateful Dead goes, I think it just has one of the greatest opening lines. You know, he just comes right out on the stage, boom. And, and it's not his song. I know it's it's they've taken the tune and from from way back when and modified it there along the way, but just did they give it that, that, you know, opening thrust. And I really like it. You know, it's fun on Europe 72 where they do it with the big piano swirl and Bobby with a big loud yelp as he goes diving into it. And it's fun. I like that song a lot. Yeah, no doubt. And uh, yeah, I know we've, we've gotten to cover that one a little bit uh, previously and in Alabama as well. Right. But those are, uh, those are both two really, really fun songs. And again, you know, I don't know why 1980 doesn't get more credit. 77, 78, 79, just so much more fanfare than 80. And 80, I think, is uh, you know, when Brent was really starting to feel it, really starting to come out of his shell a bit. You know, certainly was a period of time where they were feeling, you know, good as a band. It was 15 years in, uh, you know, completely different band than they had been. And completely a transition now away from, you know, kind of Keith and Donna years. And they were fully in swing with, uh, with, with the middle of the years. I love 1980. And I, I wish, you know, like, there was only four or five tapes I listened to a lot as a, as a kid from 1980. And this is one of them, you know, the West high was one of them. The Portland was one of them. Uh, there's, you know, just a handful, but you know, I go back now and I listen to a lot of uh, 1980s grateful dead and, and it's, so underrated in my estimation it is and and that's why i think it's, it's it's just it's great for us to explore i mean for me this is just right before i jumped on the bus so it's you know it's fun to listen to them as they start to transition into the band that they were when i then started hearing them and you know but but that's the beauty of a song like alabama getaway you know i mean i i think on fish i'd kind of liken it to sample in a car right it's just a really good rocking number they come out they jam into it everybody knows the words and you know there there's a there's a little bit of jamming into it because these any of these bands can't play a song without jamming a little bit in between uh verses but um 
you know, it just moves right along and greatest story ever told. And you're right. It does pack a powerful one, two punch. And the hope of course, when they do an Alabama greatest is that then that will prevent Bobby from immediately coming up right after that and, you know, throwing in a little red rooster or something and bringing everybody to their knees. Um, you know, and so in, in, in fact, you know, really they, they launch right into this next song that we have lined up here and that's, uh, a uh, ship of fools and uh, ship of fools is just such a, a great Jerry tune and uh, you know, wonderful Hunter lyrics. And you know, I think it tells a great story and uh, let's listen to it. Dan, can you tune that one in for us? I love that song. That's just such a beautiful song. I love it when they when they build up there to the end. And one part of the clip that, that we weren't able to squeeze in because of, you know, it's such a good long song, is how Jerry, in starting at around 1990, went from 30 years upon my head to 40 years upon my head. And, uh, you know, always got good crowd reaction with that one, too, because at least he was a little bit conscious of what was going on and where he was at. Yeah, I think he might have been thrown in the early 90s, 50 years upon my head after 92. But very few songs did they did they change that way. The other one I can always think of is um, Saturday Night. You know, depending on who was in office, you'd always get the change of whether it was Ronnie or Georgie or you know uh, Bill. But you uh, you got a little bit of a a little bit of a shift from uh, from president to president in the line referring to presidents. Sure, and if they were if Bobby was on top of his game in Minglewood Blues, you'd always get those you know Chicago Phillies or the Philadelphia girls who know just what to do and. Hopefully he'd always get that one right too. But now I've loved Ship of Fools for a long time. And uh, I know that's a uh, Elvis Costello favorite and, and Costello has recorded it. And um, he has a really, really beautiful version of it too. He does. Yeah. And Ship of Fools, again, is another one of those songs that, you know, we always, we've talked about Black Peter as being, you know, kind of a, a slow one in the second set that doesn't get the same credit as, you know, a, a Do or a Standing or a So Many Roads or Stella. But, you know, for the sort of pre-drum slot, you know, the slots going, you know, the first couple songs after your Scarlet Fire, after your China Rider, that was usually where they stuck ship. And uh, that was always one of my favorites in, in that slot. Like, I always look forward to it. But it's not one of those songs that, like, when I'm looking, you know, like for a tape to record or something to listen to where it really, like, you know, hits me as, like, oh, I should be, you know, seeking out that tape. Normally for that slot, the ones that always go after are the Warfrats, you know. So it's, uh, it, it's strange, you know, like, the, you always, there's certain songs you forget about. 
And then you come back to it and you go, oh, man, like, I don't know why I don't give that one more credit. And Ship of Fools is definitely one of those for me. I agree. It's, it's, it's just it's, it's fun to hear. And, um, you know, like everything else, it tells a good story. And, you know, Jerry always loved to sing it. And, you know, that's really the best part of all. But, um, you know, it, it, it's funny because I think it fits in perfectly with our next news story, right, which is just no good, de- no good deed deserves to go unpunished. Don't lend your hand to raise no flag atop no ship of fools in Arkansas. They already have a medical marijuana program. But the state Supreme Court just came out and blasted the state's medical marijuana commission for too many shortcomings in the program. And something that I, I had to read twice to make sure I was reading it right, the justice who writes the opinion even makes reference to unproven allegations of bribery involving the members of the state's medical marijuana commission. Now, it may be that they they have had some uh, corruption problems and things like that, but boy, for you know a, a state Supreme Court judge to be calling you out specifically on it and you know, presumably these guys are just trying to get the state's medical program up and running, right? So I don't know. Yeah, I, I, but yeah, look, look at who their governor is. When you got Asa Hutchinson, you know, former drug czar of the United States as your governor, I don't think there's too much love for the cannabis industry in Arkansas. You know, in Arkansas is a, look, I, I could be wrong on this one because I'm certainly wrong about Oklahoma. I thought Oklahoma being, you know, Scott Pruitt's state was, was certainly going to be a lot tougher about the program. And that's been like the most widely proliferated cannabis um, uh, industry I can, I can think of anywhere, like more so than even California. So that, that one caught me off guard. And, and I'll, I'll go to my grave saying I was dead wrong about Oklahoma. But, you know, with, with Arkansas... <laughs> Asia Hutchinson is no friend of the cannabis industry. No. Well, I mean, I was looking at, you know, their 2021 medical sales are $265 million. Okay. You know, that's probably California in about a week. It's a small population state though. You know, like, that's, that's the whole point. Yes. Yeah. And, and you can't be making the decisions on whether, you know, whether we're generating as much money as any other state or, or anything like that. Right. The idea is you're servicing the, the citizens of your own state. And that's where the focus should be. And, you know, if the Supreme Court's, look, maybe they had a good reason to slam these guys. I, I have to be honest, I didn't go digging deeper into the other cases that they were talking about. Um, I was just kind of surprised to see them being called, you know, on the carpet in the first instance. Um, you know, and the fact that it's Arkansas where it's happening and, you know, not some other state where we say, well, you know, here the marijuana is out in the open. So, of course, the courts are going to talk about it just seems to suggest that, you know, even within the same state, your executive branch and your uh, judicial branch and your corporate branch, none, nobody may be on the same page at all. I do want to comment on something you just said, just to sort of highlight it, which is 236 million. We look at now and go, oh, that's a tiny market. You know, that's not even a significant market. And you forget that's still $236 million in revenue production across the counter. That, that's That's not an insignificant amount of money. So when you think that like, we look at that and go, ah, yeah, Arkansas, whatever. It's an afterthought or it's a rounding error for you know the industry as a as a whole. If you told me ten years ago that a state was going to do two hundred thirty six million dollars in sales, you know, outside of like California, Colorado, Washington, and Oregon, I would have been relatively surprised. Especially when you told me it, it, it's Arkansas. So you know, putting it all in perspective, that's a uh, it's a market that I think will be end up you know ultimately when it's adult use be significantly significantly larger. But that's not an insignificant amount of money. No, and, and 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 you make a really really good point there, which is we we can't compare it based on what other states do, you know, and what they've done. I mean, for that matter, Illinois was never a big uh, big time player in the medical market either, um, and certainly their uh, adult use program. Once they roll it out, they've shown that they will they will have a big market for it. But you know what I find interesting about this, you know, and what it speaks to is you know there's everybody around the country 
in all different stages and phases of what's going on. And some states are leaders and other states are followers. And one of the big leaders has always been Colorado. And now here we're finding out that uh, adult use sales have been on a sharp decline over the past year, that April of this year was the 11th month in a row of downward sales trends. And that their sales numbers were a five, their April sales numbers were a 5% drop from March of this year, but a 25% drop from April of last year. Yeah. I mean, look, this goes right back to what we were just saying about Nebraska, you know, and, and I don't want to talk about it too much because I don't want to give people the wrong idea that, you know, a lot of the markets are, you know, a lot of these state markets still have a great deal of diversion, but the fact is a lot of them do. Right. And you know, it's certainly true of the West Coast states and it's certainly been true of Colorado. When Colorado heated up last year to the number it did, where I think it was north of $2.2 billion in a, in a state of 5.7 million people, that was an absurd amount of revenue production. You can't assume that all that was staying in the state of Colorado. So what I'll tell you is I don't think there's a chance in the world that people in Colorado have all of a sudden started you know, consuming less. I think there's been less of a necessity for what's purchased in Colorado to migrate out of Colorado as new state markets have come online. So when you take away those markets externally, you know, you expect to see like what will ultimately be steady state or equilibrium uh, where you can you know, predict what the market will be. And you predict maybe a 1% annual growth rate or something like that. But, you know, Colorado, I, I thought after 2020 that we pretty well peaked. And I was really surprised in 2021 when COVID restrictions released and people were actually getting back out and doing stuff. I thought then we were already going to see like an 8 to 10% decline. And instead we saw, you know, a, a 10% or so increase over the year over year. So I'm not surprised to see it go down in Colorado. So I don't think we should be reading into this that the that the the state all of a sudden is like, you know, okay, we're bored with cannabis. We're going to, we're going to stop consuming. I just think that it's a, um, a sign of, of how other markets now are picking up the slack of whatever that 10% increase was. And I'd expect we're going to see steady state in Colorado going forward. I mean, I think this is probably a sign of, of you know, we're not going to see real growth anymore. I think they've built up the addressable market. I think anyone that wants to consume cannabis in the entire state, there isn't a town in that state that's not serviced. So, um, you know, it's, it's not like Colorado or California is where, you know, new municipalities are still opening up and still changing their rules. Colorado, the state is wide open. And, uh, and I think that we should just expect going forward, it's going to be about $2 billion a year, you know, annual production of, uh, of revenue in that state or, you know, inflation adjusted 2 billion. Okay. And, and I think that that's, you know, certainly fair and legit. Um, it's, uh, it's just interesting to see, but I like the point that you're making, um, that as other states come online, the need for the cannabis tourism industry begins to drop. Now, may, you know, you can maybe say people look, will always want to go to Las Vegas because they love to go to Las Vegas, especially if they can go to a dispensary now. But if you can go to your local dispensary and pick up uh, a flower, you don't have a need to make a special trip to Colorado just to do it. So um, I think that that's a good way to look at it, that they're just kind of losing the, maybe a bit of this out-of-state market as opposed to losing the in-state market. But you know, the one that I think we're always going to have to keep an eye on is, Cal is uh, California, right? Because they have such a huge, the majority of their weed gets sold out of state every year. And the vast majority, like it's not even close, like 80% of what's produced in California goes out of state. You know, and, and so California is going to be, you know, the outlier in all of this, right? You know, the states are, will all kind of break back down to doing what they're doing, but everybody's going to want to get California weed when they can get it. And I'll tell you, when I was out in California in February, I found good stuff. And even last week in Arizona, you know, I, I, I was able to go in and uh, find some good stuff there at uh, at the um, Cureleaf 
uh, in Sonoma over on Jordan Road. Quick shout out to Christopher at Curalee for uh, taking such good care of me. Set me up with uh, some Larry cake, which, you know, besides the fact that it was my name, I thought was a lot of fun and a nice indica to cast, uh, cap off the evening. Is that a cross between the, uh, the Larry OG and the wedding cake? I believe it is. And um, set us up with some really nice, uh, uh, some shatter and some crumble, which uh, we don't see a lot of good crumble these days. It doesn't like kind of fall apart into a whole bunch of little pieces right away. So um, uh, I, I was very impressed with, with what they had coming out of their dispensaries and uh, really enjoyed that part of it. And um, I, I'm not sure that people come away from Illinois feeling the same way. And I'm sure there's other states where people don't come away feeling the same thing. Um, and, and, you know, on a certain level, that's always going to be a problem. But then, of course, you know, we can say that, well, we don't really represent the vast majority of the people who smoke in this state or your state there. You know, we tend to be more on the connoisseur side and pay closer attention to these kind of things than somebody who's just looking to run out on a Saturday evening and pick up a few joints uh, to go out with his buddies. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And by the way, I just looked it up for all those that are interested out there. The, um, the Larry cake is actually a cross between um, wedding cake cross and gelato 33. And put out by the Sea Junkie Genetics out of uh, Washington. Oh, Gelato Thirty Three. Yeah, I, I figured the uh, the Larry OG, which was named by 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 Big Boy from uh, from Outcast, you know, was going to be a uh, one of the one of the um, genetics used in it. But it sounds like it was Gelato Thirty Three was the other mix. Okay, well, either way, I've always been a big fan of anything called Larry in the cannabis field. So shall be called Larry. Every strange be a Larry. <laughs> hey. Won't get any argument from me. Um, my dad might not like it, but, you know, what does he care? He's 91. God bless him. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, th- th- it's just uh, – it's always fun. And I, I really, really enjoy going into these other communities and other states and, and sampling and seeing what they have. Um, you know, Oregon, I, I, you know, is, is a very well-set-up state for what they need to do internally. And other states are. California just is what it is. But, you know, it, look, it's all part of the growing process. And, you know, the thing that bothers me – is that's, you know, Cure Relief in Arizona. Cure Relief is here in Illinois. In fact, I go to Cure Relief as my primary designated medical dispensary. I can't buy this strain from them here in, El- in Illinois, at least not right now. I haven't seen it yet. And if I do, you know, I, I know what I just got in Arizona. And the question is, can they replicate the quality, the, the smell, the terpene profile, the, you know, the THC content, all of that indoors in Illinois? I'd like to think that they could, um, but we'll see. Well, yeah. Uh- I've not really been to too many of the Cure Leaf stores, but obviously those guys are doing something right. They're they're an absolute behemoth. Oh, uh, there's no doubt about it. You know, and and one of the things I like about Cure Leaf is that they are huge, uh, but they do tend to be very customer oriented. And you know, again, uh, can't say enough good things about Christopher. But you know, we're waiting outside on a beautiful day for a few minutes till he came out, brought us in, said, "No, nope, take all the time you want." Gave us the whole rundown on everything. Told him what I was looking for. Set me up with the right stuff and. Uh, you know, they, they do it the same way here in Illinois. Uh, the Cure Leaf I go to out in Deerfield, that medical dispensary, I think, is probably one of the best around. You know, it's always well-stocked, has knowledgeable people, and uh, that can really make a big difference. And, you know, I think that as we go down the road, we'll see how these different states come out with everything. And, you know, we'll see over time uh, where they wind up. And, um, you know, I just hope the states that I'm in gets it right. No doubt. What do you think is going to happen to Maryland, man? Well, you know, this is another right where you, you just want to pull your hair out of your head. And, 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 and I just I don't get it at all because there's a they, they have it on the ballot. Right. It, it's coming up. It's expected to pass by a wide margin. But this will be an election in, in calendar year 2022. And the state's already coming out and saying not to expect the program to launch until 2025. 
And, you know, one of the problems is there is that the lawmakers have refused to commit to any kind of a firm timetable to agree on the required regulatory framework that's going to be put into place to let this thing work. And, and without that, we're, you, you can't get anything up and, and getting uh, anything going. So, so I've got a solution to this. We start naming more uh, strains Larry. Perhaps we make one of uh, the Larry Hogan and, uh, you know, get, get, name one after the governor of Maryland. And see if we can convince that guy to, to get on board and say, hey, Larry, we're going to give you your own Larry OG strain. Well, I like that guy. He, you know, he he handled Trump appropriately as far as I'm concerned. But, um, yeah, look, you know, it, it just doesn't make any sense. And and what what really bothers me is there. Let's be honest. Every state talks about social equity, but who the hell really means it? I mean, in Illinois, we're finding out that it really didn't mean a lot. In other states, I think they're coming up with that. So, what are the lawmakers in Maryland doing? Well, we didn't really like the way social equity turned out in the medical program, and so we want to make sure that this time we can really create the type of diversity uh, that, that that they weren't able to create before. And you know, look. You and I both know that that is absolute horseshit. If you really are interested in diversity, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out how to put together a program that will guarantee that a certain number of true social equity individuals, the way that all of us think of social equity, not some guy who grew up rich on the Chicago North Shore and got a a marijuana ticket 10 years ago because everybody in his high school got high and they had the money to do it. And now all of a sudden it's turned into his golden ticket because that qualifies him for social equity. Yeah, no, it's it's ridiculous. It's like the the whole way they've set the the equity. Okay. Let me preface by saying I'm a huge supporter of, of equity programs. If you can figure out how to benefit the people they're trying to benefit. It's uh, so far, you know, I've brought this up before and I'll continue to say it. And hopefully the lawmaker out there is listening to, to the rant that I have every single time I say it is unless you have a fund within the state that you're actually, you know, saying, okay, let's populate this fund with, you know, revenue that were being produced um, from other taxpaying non-equity applicants. And that fund is specific to say, we'll give low interest loans or we'll give, you know, some sort of grants to people that truly are deserving of, you know, getting equity um, uh, consideration. All you're doing is inviting unscrupulous investors in to take advantage of people uh, who may or may not you know, qualify for being equity anyway or shouldn't qualify for being equity. It, the whole thing is, is, is rigged to still benefit the same people they're trying to prevent from having uh, a stranglehold on the industry in the first place. Well, that's exactly right. And that's what we had in Illinois. The way that instead of creating, I said, look, if you really want to guarantee social equity, you have to set up a separate application pool for bona fide social equity candidates, people who can really show that they satisfy all of the conditions that you're going to have, which presumably aren't so broad that rich white people on the North Shore can take advantage of them as well. But they didn't do that. They thought, well, not everybody's going to qualify for social equity, so only the real social equity people will, so that'll give them a leg up. But as it turned out, everybody quickly realized in Illinois when there's only 250 points total and social equity is 50 of them, if you don't have social equity on your application, you have no chance of getting a license total point wise. So everybody had to go for social equity. And once everybody's going for social equity status, there's no benefit anymore for the intended group. Yep. It completely and totally strips away the intent. Now, having said that, it's better than seeing, you know, capital reserve requirements that used to be on there that would shut everyone out except for the wealthiest that we saw like, you know, six, seven, eight years ago, like on, on applications in let's say New York or Massachusetts, where you had to show that you had X amount of dollars in your, in your bank to uh, even make the application. Or if you didn't, that you would lose, you know, a handful of points. And that was the difference between being a winner and a loser on those applications. 
So again, like I, I'm not a big fan of quote merit-based application systems anyway. I'm a huge fan of you know free market capitalism. Let everyone open up. Let you know like there shouldn't be any restrictions on the number of stores you can open in any given state because ultimately that's not going to last very long. They're going to flush themselves out. If you don't run the best business, then ultimately you're not going to survive. And, and by the way, with Section 280 of the tax code still hanging out over everyone, it accelerates the demise of a lot of halfway decent companies that otherwise could make it, but for the exposure to uh, to the tax code. So I, I still watch it every single month You know where I see businesses are like, man, I'd be doing just fine if it wasn't for this one portion of the code. Well, that's absolutely right. And and, and that's something that we're, we can all yell and scream about as long as we want and you know the government will maintain that as long as they can because why not it's extra money in their pocket so uh you know they're very happy with it but um it, it does i mean at the end of the day you know the key really is supposed to be an open market for everybody to participate in and although that can get kind of corny and cheesy if you say it too much and in the wrong way you know, if, if you really want to be honest about it, that, you know, the, the whole concept, the whole idea, you know, behind marijuana or the, the idea that the people in marijuana like to think is their ideal that's driving them is something more, is something greater than just pure corporate greed, you know, kind of, you know, more in the, the line of Ben and Jerry's and the way they set up their company. And, you know, we, we, we want to be a, a touchy friendly. We're all, you know, because marijuana is a good thing. It's a good energy field and this and that. But it's money. And that's all it is. And it's just another product that a lot of us like to use, but the people who are selling it to us are trying to make as much money as they can. And if they can do it, you know, in a legal way and in a way that respects their customers, fine. I don't have a problem with them making money. I do have a problem with them making more money than they should be making based on the prices that they're charging. That's just spitting in the wind again, too. So, you know, we're not going to get anywhere, uh, unfortunately, banging our head against the wall with that one. One other Arizona story that I just have to throw out really, really fast because this is debt related in a, in a very, very funny way. The third night that we were there, my wife and I and our, our good friends, Mark and Sue from St. Louis, and um, we went to a place called the Golden Goose and we had a lovely waitress named Lauren who was very chatty and very friendly and, um, you know, no doubt, you know, part of it working for the tip, but on the other hand, you know, very genuine and, you know, telling us all about the the, the vortex of positive energy and mystical powers in Sedona and all of that. And she was always standing to my right. Um, and then finally, towards the very end of the meal, she walked up to the table and she stood to my left and I was able to look up and I noticed that right behind her right ear, she had tattooed an ace of spades. So I turned to her and I said, Lauren, are you a fan of the Grateful Dead? And she turned to me and she said, why would you say that? And I said, ace of spades behind your ear, she said, and me not thinking twice. And I said, okay, I guess you are. Um, and yes, uh, you know, she's, she's younger, but dad was a big deadhead and took her to shows and really got her hooked on the music. And um, she was very excited to hear that we had a podcast and I told her I would mention her and give her a shout out. So Lauren, I've done it. And when I come back, I'll be looking for that free drink. And, and Lauren, I'll tell you that uh, I would have guessed you're a Motorhead fan. So I'm, I'm glad that Larry got it right. But I guess from the tattoos behind your ear, I would have uh, hopefully picked that one off too. But you know, if I hear an Ace of Spades tattoo, I, I immediately start thinking that you're a fan of Lemmy and not of Jerry. Well, maybe both, right? Two for the price of one. It's okay. Lemmy was great too. Love him. So that's my shout outs. Now, you know, now I've gotten everybody that I need to get and um, love that part of the world. And we'll hopefully try to get my ass back there one day. So it's good to be back, man. It's great to catch up with you. Uh, oh, really quickly in the in the extra news department, you and I have been talking about the fact that uh, there's been a lot of publicity that on this new Denon company tour that just started in Dodger Stadium and now is up at uh, 
shoreline. And uh, uh, they were talking about in Dodger Stadium how they broke out a few. Oh, oh, I guess that was last night in Shoreline, the Brent tunes they broke out. But they, as you and I discussed, they really weren't Brent tunes. They were tunes on which Brent sang. Um, but they also apparently, Den and Company, have started singing uh, Sing Me Back Home. Uh, and they did that the first night at Shoreline. And, you know, that we from probably, what, 71 to 73, I think, you know, the Dead played it fairly regularly. I think it was part of their regular repertoire on tour. And then they just stopped playing it. It's a Merle Haggard tune. I love it. It's a great, great song. And I always wished that it was a tune that Jerry would have kept playing because it would have just added one more ballad uh, to the rotation. But I guess it's fun to hear that Dead and Company have, you know, reached back deep into the catalog and pulled out something like that. Yeah, I agree. I, I always like when they pull some stuff out that uh, they haven't played in a long time. And it's nice to see them switching it up. You know, for a while, it seemed like they're only playing the same songs. So it's nice to see that they're, they're introducing, um, yep. you know, some new things. I still, I'm waiting for them to actually write some new music. I'm still waiting for them to introduce something that that's original. Um, so, you know, perhaps we'll see that, but you know, perhaps people just don't want it either. So I don't know. I mean, as long as they're not bringing back like, um, you know, uh, I don't know, a couple of like the, the later year Bobby tunes, I think, I think I'm probably okay. Yes. Uh, and, and in that same vein, uh, recently Dylan just uh, pulled out a cover of friend of the devil. Yeah. Did you see that? I did. Yeah, he did as a collaboration. Yeah, I love Bob Dylan. Anyway, you know, and 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 we may have talked about this once, but I, you know, there's a clip floating around of him doing Alabama Getaway too. Yeah, I know for sure, and it's actually really really fun. He played that for a while, um, uh, like for two or three years. I was in uh, in his uh, catalog when he was playing, but I'd never heard him play Friend of the Devil before. And again, so you know, like Friend of the Devil is one of those songs where it could have been a Dylan tune, it could have been a Hunter tune. You know, like you, it, it's really hard to say. You know, when you listen to it, if you were to just look at the words and say, who wrote this song, I'd be hard pressed to say whether I thought it was Dylan or Hunter that penned it. Right. No, I, I agree with that. And, and, you know, what's kind of funny about it, right, is, I mean, Dylan is like the seminal rock and roll artist who everybody covers. And here he is covering the Grateful Dead. I just love that. Yeah, I do too. Well, looking forward to uh, to next week, Larry. Great to have you back. Uh, we missed you last week, but I uh, hope you had a terrific vacation. We all all need one. And, uh, yes, sir. I don't know, what, what do we have to close us out on this show? Well, I think that uh, we, we have an old standard by the Grateful Dead that, uh, you know, always sometimes seem to come in at inopportune moments. But on the other hand, it's a great tune to listen to. Jerry loves it. Brent really lets loose on the Hammond B3 on it. And uh, the tune is Don't Ease Me In. They were playing it as far back, I guess, as 1966. Uh, they still have played it right up to the very end. Uh, this night they chose to throw it in as the encore, whatever, that's their choice, uh, but it still really moves and shakes. So, Rob, before we dive into this, I will say thank you. It's great to be back. Great show. Uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again next week. Sounds great. Until then, uh, we'll see you guys soon. Thank you very much, and I will say uh, goodbye to everyone. Have a great week. Stay safe. Enjoy your cannabis responsibly, and enjoy Don't Ease Me In from West High School Auditorium in Anchorage, Alaska.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. 99.9% of our DNA is identical. It's a 0.1% that truly makes us different and unique. And that's what the show is about. Find out that 0.1% about your favorite guests. Find out what music they like, their first cannabis experience, and even what their room looked like growing up. But more importantly, or as important, their journey. Learn what makes them unique on Everything is Personal.